0: The volume of data in the world is always increasing. The cost of storing that data is always decreasing. And the means for processing that data is always evolving. Sensors, cameras, and other small computers gather large quantities of data from the physical world around us. User analytics tools gather information about how we are interacting with the internet. Logging servers collect terabytes of records about how our systems are performing. From the popularity of MapReduce, to the rise of open-source distributed processing frameworks like Spark and Flink, to the wide variety of cloud services like BigQuery, there is an endless set of choices for how to analyze gigantic sets of data. Machine learning, training, and inference is another dimension of the modern data engineering stack. Whereas tools like Spark and BigQuery are great for performing ad hoc queries, Systems like TensorFlow are optimized for the model training and deployment process. That's not to say that you can't use Spark and BigQuery for machine learning, just to make the point that TensorFlow is a tool that is specialized for machine learning. And stitching together all of these tools allows a developer to compose workflows for how data pipelines progress through a data engineering system. One popular tool for orchestrating these workflows is Apache Airflow, which was created in 2014 and is widely used at companies like Airbnb. Over the next few years, we will see a proliferation of even more new tools in the world of data engineering. And there's good reason for this. There's a wealth of opportunity for large, old enterprises to leverage their data to make better decisions and potentially to clean and offer their internal data as APIs and pre-trained machine learning models. In fact, this is not just true for large enterprises, it's also true for fairly new startups. Many new startups are gathering unique data sets and within the span of a few months or a year, they can have a highly differentiated set of data to build machine learning models or APIs around. Today, there is a vast number of enterprises who are modernizing their software development process with Kubernetes, cloud providers, and continuous delivery. Eventually, these enterprises will improve their complex software architecture, they'll improve their release process, and they'll start to move from a defensive refactoring position to an offensive one in which they will leverage their infrastructure to build new products together with their core competency. These enterprises will shift their, quote, modernization efforts, from DevOps to DataOps, and thousands of software vendors will be ready to sell them new software for building their data platform. In fact, there are many enterprises that are already making this shift towards focusing on their data platform, or they may be building out their data platform in parallel with improving their infrastructure through DevOps. There's not a consensus for the best way to build and run a data platform. Nearly every company that we've talked to on the show has a different definition and a different architecture for their data platform. DoorDash, Dremio, Prisma, Uber, MapR, Snowflake, Confluent, Databricks. Just to name a few of the companies that we've talked to about their data platforms, there is so much variety. We don't expect to have a concise answer for how to run a data platform anytime soon, but on the bright side, data infrastructure seems to be universally improving. Companies are increasingly able to ask questions about their data and get quick answers. This is in contrast to the long delay that it used to take to get answers from your data. This was so prevalent five years ago when you had to go to the Hadoop query operator and ask them to run your complex Hadoop query, and it would take an entire day to run. That's all changing at many places. Today, we cover yet another approach to large-scale data processing. Reflow is a system for incremental data processing in the cloud. Reflow includes a functional, domain-specific language for writing workflow programs. It contains a, a runtime for evaluating these programs incrementally, and a scheduler for dynamically provisioning resources for those workflows. Reflow was created for large bioinformatics workloads, but it should be broadly applicable to scientific and engineering computing workloads. Reflow evaluates programs incrementally. Whenever the input data or the program changes, only the outputs that depend on the changes are recomputed. This minimizes the amount of recomputation that needs to be performed across a computational graph. Marius Ericsson is the creator of Reflow and an engineer at Grail. He joins the show to discuss the motivation for a new data processing system, which involves explaining why workloads in bioinformatics are different than in some other domains. So we start off the conversation talking a lot about bioinformatics and the context of the problems that he's solving at Grail, Grail is a, a biology company, these problems led him to creating Reflow. Very interesting episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Marius Erickson, you are an engineer at Grail Biology and the creator of Reflow. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. I want to start with a discussion of the problem that you're focused on at Grail Biology because I think it illuminates why you're working on Reflow as well. So Reflow is a system for processing data in certain ways, and Grail Biology is a bioinformatics company. It's early-stage cancer detection Company. Let's talk about the problem of early stage cancer detection because it will inform this engineering uh, solution that you're working on. So, detecting cancer early, why is that important?
1: Well, it's important because the earlier you detect cancer, the higher chance you have of surviving that cancer. And so, the sort of typical figure that's used is if you have detected cancer at, say, a later stage, so stage three or four. Uh, you have about a, a 80 or a 20 percent chance of survival but if you're able to detect that cancer at an earlier stage so stage one or, or even stage two that flips around and so you, you end up having an 80 percent chance of surviving just sort of This is, of course, very dependent on cancer type and things like this. But on a a broad basis, that is sort of the rule of thumb that's used. And so the problem of diagnosing and screening and and testing for cancer, a huge lever we have to improve the mortality and morbidity of of cancer on, on a population level. What are the
0: conventional, traditional ways of screening for cancer?
1: Yeah, so there's a number of them and they're often very specific to the kind of cancer. So, the two most common ones, I believe, are are mammograms for, for breast cancers and then colonoscopies for, for colorectal cancers. And of course, the drawback of both of those is that they both are quite invasive. They're not pleasant routines and they are only able to detect a single cancer each, right? And so, uh, while they may be, you know, reasonably good at detecting those particular kinds of cancers, they will only detect those kinds of cancers. And then also compliance is is very low. And so if you look at colorectal cancer, for example, even though, you know, uh, if you're in a high risk segment of the population, you should be getting colonoscopies on a regular basis. People rarely do because it's just not a not a very pleasant experience. And so being able to offer a screening technology that's both you know, much more pleasant in in how it's actually performed, as well as one that can cover a larger number of cancer types. And it's going to be, you know, potentially a big deal.
0: When you have cancer in a significant way, you can get these tumors, metastatic tumors, and cancer tumors can emit something called ctDNA. Explain what
1: ctDNA is. Yeah, great. So ctDNA stands for circulating tumor DNA. And so the basic idea is that when cells die they shed bits and pieces of of their DNA into your bloodstream. And all cells do this. So, you know, as as cells go through their natural cycles of of death by whatever means, bits and pieces of their DNA will be shed into the bloodstream. It's it's basically your body's garbage collection mechanism. This of course then also happens for for tumor cells, you know, for or for cells that are derived from from tumors. And the idea then is that if we have, you know, nucleotides or small fragments of DNA floating around the blood, the idea is that, well, can we sequence that blood and try to understand whether or not there is some evidence of the presence of, of these kinds of DNA fragments in your blood, if they come from healthy cells or from, uh, from, from unhealthy cells? And so that's a general idea.
0: Is there enough CT DNA produced by a tumor that I can reliably find it in the bloodstream? Or how much blood do you have to take and sequence in order to discover with a significant degree of accuracy whether there is cancer present?
1: Yeah, so that's the sort of ongoing question, right? And so, you know, so obviously, if you have an early stage tumor, you can imagine that that's not a significant portion of the cells in your body, and, and thus will likely not be a significant part of Cell-free nucleotides in in your bloodstream, whereas when a cancer progresses, the number of DNA fragments that are in your bloodstream that come from from cell death, effectively that are also sourced from a for, from from a tumor, will will increase over time as the severity of that tumor uh, increases. And so the sort of core challenge is to be able to detect these cancers at an earlier and earlier stage. To be able to Uh, build technologies, uh, both in terms of, you know, wet lab processing, as as well as what we call dry lab processing, so digital processing, to be able to pick up these sort of diminishing signals uh, at a much earlier stage. And that's kind of the core challenge, actually, of of the work that, that is being done in this field. And it's a you know there's a pretty clear correlation, uh, in, and this has been published by both Grail and by, by other researchers as well. There's a pretty clear sort of correlation of cancer stage and the amount of cell free or, or circulating tumor DNA uh, that you're able to pick up.
0: By the way, this would be something that is going to be the killer app for the smart toilet. once we finally have the smart toilet is if you can just screen your stool, then that's even less invasive than, than the bloodstream.
1: Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, by the time that, that these nucleotides make them make their way through your your you know, your your digestive system and in your intestines and eventually your colon, probably the vast majority of them will, will disappear. However, interestingly, there are there are a few companies and, and research groups working on precisely this problem for colorectal cancer. So there's some good evidence showing that you can do precisely what you're suggesting for colorectal cancer specifically.
0: Future is bright. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, Grail, where you work, is developing a screening process, a blood test screening process for this kind of circulating tumor DNA. Describe the screening process that these Grail customers would undergo.
1: So, the idea is it's, it's just a blood draw. So, like any, if you've ever had a, you know, labs done, it's effectively exactly the same procedure. And so, you go and you see a phlebotomist and they draw some blood. And then that blood is sent to, to us and we analyze it. At a high level, what do you need to do after you get that blood test? So after we get the blood, there's a involved multi-day process to extract the cell-free DNA from that blood. So to basically sort of purify and enrich the DNA content of that blood because of, you know, this is biology and chemical reactions take a long time and so on and so forth that can literally take a few days to perform. And then once that's done, we have now sort of purified and enriched DNA. So basically, we've extracted only the cell-free DNA from your blood. And we then use uh, standard sequencing technology to, to sequence this DNA material. After that point, it's all digital. So this is sort of where reflow enters the pictures, as well as, of course, all of the bioinformatics and machine learning that we're doing.
0: So the sequencing process, producing the raw genetic data from the blood, that's a solved problem?
1: Well, so it's a solved problem in the sense that there exists sort of standard technology to do this. And so you can go to a company like Illumina uh, and buy a sequencer from them that will, you know, will perform that. However, there's a lot of um, work that has been done to get the DNA sort of into the right or the, the source material into the right shape so that it can be sequenced effectively and successfully. And that's a lot of uh, the the kind of black magic that happens in assay development and uh, in the wet lab processing more generally. But uh, you could kind of compare it to the computer industry, where there's a number of standard components. We have, you know, you can get processors from from Intel and GPUs from N- Nvidia, and so on and so forth. But the art is sort of putting them together in, in just the right way in order to get the results that you want. So definitely, we're using a lot of off-the-shelf technologies, but but the, the the magic comes you know comes about putting it together in the right way.
0: So is the output from that result? Is it a list of A T C G? What are those
1: nucleotides? That's right. Yeah. So the output what you get out of the sequencer once that DNA is sequenced is a set of what we call short reads, and so these are are fragments somewhere around 150 base pairs. And so this is 150 contiguous letters of, you know, ATGC. So I guess to step back a little bit, the nucleotides that are shed into your blood that are part of this process of cell death sort of have a natural length of around that. So around say 150 to or 140 to 180 base pairs long. And that's just part of that just comes comes about from the way the DNA is actually packaged and and it just happens to to kind of come out that way. And so the sort of raw source information that we have consists of effectively, you know, millions or billions of of these fragments no longer than say, you know, uh, 180 to 200 base pairs long. When we sequence that they are in principle totally unrelated. And so what we get is basically raw data that just says, well, I observed a fragment, it has this sequence of, of nucleotides, I observed this other fragment it has this other sequence of nucleotides, and so on and so forth. And so you can imagine the raw data is, is not very useful on its own.
0: Okay, so the raw data is base pairs. So DNA is double helix. So you have these pairs of nucleotide bases that are are just in sequence and since you get this blood sample it's just a bunch of mixed up DNA and you're sampling that DNA in the sequencing process and each sample is 150 base pairs and then so you've got this now you've got this data set of a bunch of 150 base pair substrings of the human's entire genome and then you can do interesting things with these 150 base pair long substrings like you can do some string matching and and probably like kind of figure out what's going on across the human's entire genome is it is that kind of accurate
1: yeah more or less and so there's there's a lot so what you get out of the sequencer is definitely imperfect in many ways and so there's what we call technical noise, and so you know the sequencer makes mistakes. It's just part of the sequencing te- technology. It's not. It's not. It can't make a perfect determination of a particular base. There are all sorts of processes in the wet lab processing that that introduces biases or errors. There can be contamination, right? There could be non-human, you know, DNA sequences like like viral sequences, for example, that get picked up. And so you know what you get is yes, most of it will be. From the particular human that you're you're sampling but there's a lot of lot of noise that you also have to account for and so the whole field of bioinformatics is is basically taking this this raw data very very noisy sort of hard to process and voluminous data and making sense of it and so the the process of bioinformatics is again sort of like taking this like you know huge bucket of of noisy data and ultimately coming out with a determination saying oh you know you have you know, this particular haplotype or, or this particular variation at this point in the genome. And so that's a sort of rich field all by itself.
0: And so people listening to this are like checking their watches right now and wondering, okay, when is this going to get into software engineering? And we're almost there. So we've got this data set of a bunch of 150 base pair long segments of DNA and we want to look at these and, and find the CT DNA among these. We want to find the circulating tumor DNA, because if we can identify from among these samples, these 150 base pair long samples, that looks like can't circulating tumor DNA, then you could say with some degree of confidence to the, the patient, hey, you've got this cancer DNA, maybe we should do some more close screening. Maybe we should, you know, give you a mammogram or something, you know, other other kinds of uh, interventions or or screenings. But this is the key problem, right? That we want to look at these 150 base pair sequences and be able to identify what might
1: resemble ctDNA. That's right. And not just ctDNA per se, but we want to identify whether or not there's effectively evidence of malignant, you know, cancers, right? And so, it could be, for example, and, and we have actually published on this, and you can go to our website and, and look at some of, some of those publications to sort of understand a little more context about this. But you can, for example, imagine that there are certain kinds of patterns or signals that you might see from, from DNA, from, from the cell-free DNA, that may look like cancer but maybe in one individual that it actually is cancer, but in another it is not. And so it's not a sort of simple, oh, I found this you know, one needle in the haystack and that definitely determines whether or not there is or isn't cancer. It's really a much more complicated kind of classification than that that may require a lot more context as well. So as one example of that, there is this sort of set of confounding signals that you know, simply as you age, there are some kinds of mutations that go on in your body And those mutations that end up in your white blood cells look a lot like the kinds of mutations that you might see in cancers, but they're not actually cancers, right? And so making that distinction is a very hard and and, and tricky problem. And I think also core to the kind of technical and data science issues that that we work on trying to solve this problem.
0: Well, we see this begins to sound like A machine learning problem that we have uh, begun to solve with regularity like looking at an image and being able to detect that there's a cat in the image even though cats look a lot like dogs in some ways and you know now it seems trivial to detect a cat from a dog with image recognition but it was not so long ago that that was almost unfathomable.
1: That's right. To take the cat analogy a little further, it may be that you have a bunch of cats that are kind of docile and not not harmful, but you have to distinguish between those cats and the ones that are, you know, ready to fight or are causing harm in some other ways, right? Uh, you want to try to sort the troublesome cats out from the cats that aren't going to cause any trouble.
0: Right. But this problem is tough because I don't remember too much about Biology or or genetics, but I know that there's, you know, these different layers of abstraction, and you have like if you're just looking at these raw nucleotides, it's almost like you're looking at like ones and zeros. It's like you've taken a program, like a hello world program, and you've put it into a blender. And then you've just got like little pieces of, of ones and zeros. And you've got to put this program back together and try to understand what's going on. That can be a pretty noisy process. You know, maybe some ones and zeros get lost. And it's like, how am I going to figure this out? And you've got these different layers of abstraction with proteins and things that we don't really understand very well. This is very noisy, but it is the kind of problem that's amenable to to machine learning.
1: That's right. And so, you know, you, you could imagine that if you were to sort of tackle this from sort of modern machine learning perspective, you could even imagine to say, you know what, we have all this raw data and we're going to try to shape it into some sort of form that I can throw a neural network at. To try to have it learn what it you know what are the pertinent you know features of the underlying data that that would be able to uh, you know robustly classify cancers versus non-cancer as an example. However, the big obstacle to that currently is that there just isn't enough data to go around to I think employ those kinds of generic more black boxish techniques to this to this domain at least not in this way simply because. It's uh, one thing to get a large labeled, say, image classification data set, whereas actually undergoing the clinical trials that are required to collect the data that, that we need is a, is a much more arduous and, and far more expensive exercise. And so while we're running very large scale clinical trials to get data, we're, the industry still isn't at the scale where we have enough, you know, have big enough sample sizes, I think, where those kinds of techniques are going to be very productive at least for not for the kinds of things that we're doing
0: right we've done some shows about stuff like uh, stroke detection and even like stroke detection is an easier problem than this because we at least have a good understanding of what a a human image of a stroke victim looks like we can image that that uh, stroke victim's brain and label that we have a high confidence that this person is a stroke victim Cancer is a much less well-defined process. As you mentioned earlier, you've got this issue where somebody who's getting old may be exhibiting certain traits or they're producing certain proteins that are that look like a cancer patient, but they're just old. They don't they not have cancer. They're just they're producing the old person protein. So how do you solve? How is that solvable? Or what are some some techniques you can use to to try to solve this in a pre-labeled data world?
1: Yeah, I mean, the big thing that has sort of traditionally been applied here is to use bioinformatics to kind of derive a higher level structural understanding of what it is that we see from from these raw sequencing data, right? So as an example, we may be able to determine uh, using bioinformatics that there is a evidence of a kind of mutation that is commonly seen in some cancer types, right? That's sort of one very common thing that you might do, or there might might be uh, other kinds of things that are hallmarks of the way cancers work that you may be able to suss out so for example, it's very common for cancers to induce sort of large larger scale uh, structural variation in the genome, so they might You know, fuse uh, chromosomes, for example, or make a lot more copies of one region of one chromosome or make a lot fewer copies of, of another region of another chromosome. And so there are all these sort of biological features that we can use bioinformatics to extract effectively. And then use machine learning on those in order to uh, determine if you can build a robust classifier based on on these kind of biological or structural understanding of, of the data.
0: Wow. Okay. So you look at a person's specific genome or, or their, this genetic sequence that we've established, we look for hallmarks in the data that mutations have occurred and then we and then we have a model for that specific person or or do you have these are there just population wide mutations that you can discover and then and then later screen for it with machine learning?
1: Yeah. So the basically a combination of all of those things. And so you can imagine that one approach is the following. So let's say that you sequence not cell for DNA but actual tumor tissue, right? So you're directly examining the cells that are or the genomics of a, a, an actual solid tumor, say. And uh, you might find that certain tumor types, so to step back just a little bit, You know, cancer is sort of inherently a genetic disease in that the way cancer works and propagates is to alter the genetics of individual cells so that they often inhibit cell death or induce more growth and, and things like this. And so the various mechanisms that allow for genetic mod- modification are are kind of all at play and so there's some very you know sort of famous kinds of driver mutations that tend to occur across you know large numbers of, of different cancers that you might be able to look for you might be able to tell that well actually these kinds of mutations tend to predominantly occur when there's you know actual clinical evidence of cancer whereas they tend to you know occur at a much 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 lower level uh, when there is not right and so there's a lot of different data sets that you can kind of combine and put together including running your own clinical trials in order to Monitor individuals and sort of understand the genomics of their cell free DNA and then determine later on whether or not they did or did not develop cancers.
0: Okay, we have framed the data processing problem. We've got these sequences of nucleotides. We need to run certain classification systems on them. We need to build models around them. We need to do a lot of data processing on this high volume of genetic sequence data. So we've done lots of shows on compute-intensive workflows like MapReduce jobs, Spark jobs, distributed machine learning. Why is this any different? How does a bioinformatics workload compare to these these compute-intensive w- workloads that we already have solutions for?
1: So it both is and isn't different at the same time. So. To set the stage a little bit, a lot of the tooling that's available for for bioinformatic data processing is what I like to call file-grained, as in F-I-L-E-grained, you know, data processing tools. And they often take inputs as, you know, just a set of files that are usually in a few well-defined formats and then produce outputs in, you know, another set of formats. And most of bioinformatic processing tools are kind of packaged as their own executable that, again, sort of takes a bunch of files as input and and produces a bunch of files as output. And the sort of act of producing a bioinformatics pipeline or a data processing workflow is basically sort of piecing all these tools together. So it's not all that dissimilar from how you would build a software. So if you look at even, you know, an old classic tool like Make, right, it sort of operates on the same model where I can declare dependencies on certain kinds of files and then make, knows how to effectively build those files and effectively builds its internally a a kind of dependency graph between all the different files that are are produced and consumed, right? And so that sort of sets the stage a little bit for how most bioinformatic data processing is is performed, right? And so this is also not unlike a lot of these sort of modern ETL, so you know extract, transform, form, load workloads, where you're effectively pre-processing a bunch of data sets so that they can be you know processed into a format that's useful for you know online querying or or data analytics down the road or machine learning. And so I, th- I think there's sort of one of the big sort of fundamental differences between something like, well, there's really two big fundamental differences between tools like MapReduce and Spark and what's needed for bioinformatic processing. So the, the first is that you just have to be able to work within this ecosystem. And so, you know, you have tools. That are written in everything from highly optimized C to using R, the uh, statistical programming language uh, to Perl and Python and everything else in between. Right. So that's one big difference. The other big difference is that these tools just do not work at a, at a record level la- level in the sense that in MapReduce and Spark, you define your data processing, you know, functions effectively, usually on a per record basis. Whereas uh, these tools work much more like compilers so have, couple of different inputs that are expressed often as in our case very large files and i produce you know some number of outputs that are that are also in files right
0: so if i understand correctly the big difference is with like a spark job at netflix for example you're doing a lot of processing over records like a user and their list of movies that they've watched and developing a recommendation system for other movies or something like that. What you're talking about is you're taking these files that are lists of, of nucleotides, long lists of, of, of base pairs, or just genetic sequence material, and you need to compile them, or you, you need to basically Run complex data processing to to infer information about those sequences, and that's just a different kind of of operation. Am I, am I understanding correctly?
1: Well, it isn't. It isn't right. You could actually write most of these tools in terms of uh, something a framework like MapReduce or Spark, but in terms of. You know what the bioinformatics community already has produced. You know all the various open source tools available, as well as just what's you know what is sort of standard across the industry in terms of bioinformatics and biostatistics. There's just a lot of heterogeneity, right? And so you just have to be able to run tools. You know again, like everything from optimized C++ to you know random. Perl and Python scripts to process this data. And so that's just, just the, the way you know, most, most tools in bioinformatics actually are. And that's the way these tools are written, the heterogeneity of, you know, of the languages and the runtimes and the, the frameworks used, as well as the fact that uh, you know, they, they all effectively are you know, sort of file-grained computing in the sense that they operate a file at a time instead of record at a time sort of requires slightly different tooling than, you know, something like Spark or MapReduce.
0: I see. Okay, so I was confused. The concern is is that as software engineers, we might be general purpose software engineers who are listening they're used to consuming things at an API level, for example, like Stripe or Twilio, or or maybe there's a, a richly documented API for Google BigQuery, for example. But in the bioinformatics world, you've got you know you you can't just take these APIs off the shelf. You've got a bunch of Uh, Perl scripts and and weird pieces of software that have been written over the years in research labs that are not well documented And you have to figure out how to run them And it's not just like you make an api call to some something as a service over there It's it's more like you need to be able to stand up these things You need to be able to uh, to run them in sequence because this is just the bioinformatics community This is the way it has developed software over the years
1: that's exactly right. it's, and you know and uh, the analogy again to sort of build systems is sort of apt right like you don't rewrite your C++ compiler and MapReduce because you want it to go faster you figure out how to build infrastructure that can accommodate you know using the existing compilers and, and build tools to kind of endow them with the characteristics that you want, whether that be speed and parallelism or turnaround time or, or whatever else right And so that's sort of we're sort of in the business of bringing infrastructure to the tools rather than the other way around.
0: Mm. Okay. So what is Reflow? Tell me about Reflow.
1: Yeah. So to set the stage a little bit too, there's a you know, fairly rich ecosystem of uh, sort of workflow processing tools. And so these are, are tools like Apache Airflow, for example, that allow you to effectively express dependency graphs between effectively tool invocations, right? And so you can express things like, for example, I have a bunch of raw sequencing data, and the first thing I need to do with them is to align them to some reference genome, and then maybe I want to remove, you know, duplicate reads, and and these are all sort of different stages of of data processing, and these data processing pipelines can get, you know, really rather large uh, and 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 complex because there's a lot of different processing steps, for one, but also because there's sort of inherent parallelism in the data itself. So, for example, the sequencers that we use may produce even thousands of different files that could be processed independently, right? Again, this is somewhat analogous to the software build problem where Compilers can usually compile individual modules or, or even source files independently, so there exists sort of a natural granularity or level of parallelism, right? And so these dependency graphs can get, uh, you know, really quite large and complicated in order to sort of fully exploit the underlying parallelism and even just to express the the, the true dependencies of between the various tools that exist. And so what we sort of found when we started uh, is that most of these, these systems do operate at this kind of level. They often provide some nice Python APIs, for example. But fundamentally, they're about declaring dependencies between tasks or stages of a data processing workflow. And we found that to have a, a few different problems. So one is that really the, the notion of, of declaring dependencies between tasks is a really rather low-level kind of implementation detail, right? One I think sort of flawed premise of these of these kinds of tools. The other thing is that the tools themselves don't actually enforce any sort of data model. And what I mean by that is that these systems track simply the fact that the invocation of one tool depends on another, but but not which what data flows between them. And because they lack this kind of tracking or this kind of data model, that also limits what can be done in the tool itself. So as a simple example, if you were able to precisely track the inputs to the tool and their outputs, you might be able to also track the contents of the inputs and the outputs and cache you know, the results of an invocation of that tool so that it can be reused at a later time. And that's just one of the kinds of things that, that are enabled by enforcing a data model on this problem. And so come to, to come back to the the original question, Reflow is basically our our take on this, and so Reflow itself is actually a programming language. and so instead of building these data processing jobs or tasks by the low level details and minutiae of declaring dependencies between tasks, declaring the tasks, and you know trying to keep you know a whole dependency graph in your head. You simply use ordinary programming to, you know, express the the thing that it is that you want to compute. And Reflow is able to seamlessly sort of integrate external tools with that. And it's not unlike you know programming in, in Python or Go or anything else like that. You're just sort of applying ordinary programming principles to express these data processing workloads. And then the other thing is that because it's just an ordinary programming language, we can apply ordinary programming uh, practices and principles to this. So, for example, you can have a declare a module that does something like uh, sequence alignment, which is a very common thing to do in bioinformatics. And that can be tested independently. It can be reused across many different workflows or pipelines. And so you sort of live in this environment where you're just writing programs. Now, what Reflow is able to do with that is to deduce what can be run in parallel or not. And so it uses effectively data flow semantics, which means in this case that any two tasks that do not have data dependencies between them can be run in parallel. And so in Reflow, you can write straightforward looking code and and even have things like, you know, iteration and things like this, but actually, ReFlow is able to understand what can be run in parallel and what can't, and will sort of maximally parallelize your job for you.
0: So, the world without ReFlow, if
1: you wanted to do all of
0: the bioinformatics work that is required to compute over that vast quantity of sequence data that is the end result of of that that blood test and the sequencing, if you wanted to do all your bioinformatics work. You could do it, but it would take a while. It would be hard to express. You wouldn't be able to express it in a way that's parallelizable without significant work. And what Reflow does is it it reframes that environment where, you know, without Reflow, you'd be looking at this disparate set of bioinformatics tools that are hard to work with, that you're probably just using in serial to understand what's going on in this genetic sequence data. And with ReFlow, you're recasting these 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 software packages that are really annoying to work with and unparallelizable as parallelizable packages that are easier to work with and easier to program against.
1: More or less. I mean, obviously, ReFlow can't parallelize you know a, a tool that isn't isn't in and of itself parallelized, but it can parallelize across that tool. So, in the sense that you know, take this this previous example of doing sequence alignment where the output of a sequencer might, you know, we might have a thousand files. And so the way you would express that in Reflow is you just say, well, I'm just going to iterate over all the sequence files and then align them and then merge them, right? And so you're expressing just a straightforward program. The way Reflow is able to execute that is to execute all of those 1,000 alignments in parallel. And then obviously it can't merge in parallel because it requires all those thousand subtasks to be done. But all that's sort of taken care of for you. As a user, you're just expressing in a very natural way what it is that you want to compute. And then Reflow figures out how to go about that. So this project
0: called Airflow came out of Airbnb, and you, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Airflow is, is widely used for doing this kind of workflow sequencing process. And uh, we did a show about it a while ago, but it's been a, a little while since I, I looked at it. How does airflow the Apache airflow project how does that compare to what you're trying to accomplish with reflow?
1: yeah so I think it differs in in really three big ways and so so one is is sort of what I touched on where in airflow you have to construct and and you can use Python to do so which and, and use the abstractions of Python to help you out but ultimately you have to construct effectively dependency graph a dag between different tasks so that's that's one thing and it's up to you to sort of track the actual data that's exchanged between these different stages. And so so Airflow does not impose a data model. It can't really do anything other than coordinate the different tasks. And so that's the second big, big difference. And I'm happy to get into the, I think this is actually probably one of the most significant advantages of Reflow, which I'm happy to get into later. And then third... Airflow also is sort of a coordination framework that requires some other infrastructure to actually run it. So you can have, yeah, like, say, a Kubernetes plugin to run these individual tasks on a, on, a, on a cluster, whereas the way Reflow is designed is actually to be sort of top to bottom vertically integrated. And so when you run Reflow, we really wanted this experience of it just being run like any other program. It just so happens to be able to dynamically and automatically instantiate you know, an arbitrary in principle, arbitrary number of instances on EC2, for example, to, to handle that workload. And so as long as you have some AWS credentials in your, in your environment, it just sort of automatically does all of this. And so it's, it does not require any sort of third-party cluster management or other kinds of infrastructure. It is more or less wholly self-contained. From a user's point of view, that makes, I think, a big difference because there's much less sort of operational overhead. You really are running a an interpreter like you would. It just has this magic superpower of being able to launch clusters. But then actually from an implementation point of view and a design point of view, actually assuming the responsibilities of this problem end-to-end allows you to co-design the runtime and the semantics of the language in such a way that reduces the overall complexity of the system quite dramatically. And so a simple example of this is because in Reflow, the data model and the execution model of Reflow sort of enforces that tools are uh, referentially transparent, meaning that uh, if I run it one time, then the next time I run it, there should be no distinction between actually running the tool and just replacing the output of that tool with the the output from the previous execution. So, you know, tools have to be idempotent and things like this. And because of that, things like failure handling becomes very, very simple. So in Reflow, the way it, for example, instantiates and maintains a compute node on on EC2 is that it just maintains a keep alive. And as long as this keep alive is happy, it, it keeps going on. But if it fails, it just sort of assumes that all those tasks failed and then just restarts them somewhere else. These kinds of uh, design decisions that come about when you sort of co-design the, the high-level user interface of so the language in this case with the actual low-level runtime, it really helps simplify the overall complexity of the systems because you're not you know you're not using something like Kubernetes for example which is designed to be much more general and much more capable of of handling a, a large variety of situations whereas for this particular domain we really just need a, you know a very narrow very sort of easier to implement set of functionality from a, from a cluster manager. And that's exactly what we do, right? And so in Reflow, I think the, the cluster manager itself that deals with EC2, for example, I think is literally something like six or 700 lines of code in Go. And that it basically subsumes the functionality of, of a system like Kubernetes or, or even AWS Batch. And again, it's because of this kind of code design.
0: So with, with something like Spark... I need to be orchestrating across multiple nodes because I'm keeping this data set that's really big and only fits uh, across multiple nodes. So I've got this resilient distributed data set. With Reflow, when you're not built on something like Kubernetes or something like, like Mesos, is, is that to say that you're just trying to to run operations that are, are small enough to fit into a single node?
1: No, actually, not at all. So, so we run reflow regularly using often tens of thousands of cores on a single job. And so the constraint, though, is that a single sort of atomic ex- execution has to be able to fit on a node. But that's sort of inherent to the domain in the sense that I have, you know, I have a program and I can't kind of break that down further than it already is, already is broken down for me. However, maybe I can break up the input in certain ways to make you know, each individual execution smaller. And actually, this is a common strategy in Reflow where you can have uh, some, say, large input file and break it into thousands of pieces and then process each of those pieces individually. Right? And so it almost becomes a similar, similar style of computing to, to MapReduce, but not as fine-grained. And so Reflow actually does track and, and manage data movement and transfers between the different nodes. So, for example, let's say that I run these you know, 1,000 alignments in parallel and I instantiate a 100 instance or 100 node cluster to do so. Right? It'll do that on demand right, as needed. When all that data is needed on a single node, perhaps because it, it needs to be merged, uh, Reflow will just automatically transfer that to the node that's performing the merge. But all that is completely transparent from the user, right? As a user, you simply understand that there is a data dependency because that's you know that's what you're expressing in the program. But everything else is taken care of for you by reflow itself.
0: Okay, so th- there's two comparisons that I want to set up here. So we've got this set of workloads that we want to run our genetic sequence data on. And we could run this genetic sequence data just uh, serially through the tools that you know these janky or, or or this this strange bioinformatics set of tools that have been written in different languages and and different you know different platforms over over the years, we could just run them in sequence, or we could use something like Airflow, we know which you've you've already touched on, and which is going to be orchestrating Kubernetes pods and or or Mesosphere or Mesos nodes, or we could use Reflow. So I, I want to, in order to emphasize what Reflow is doing differently, could you contrast Reflow with
1: those other options? So in terms of, of Airflow, again, like let me sort of list, uh, I think, again, the three major differences and, and sort of elaborate a little bit on, on how how they play out in terms of actual advantages, both in terms of operations and, and in terms of use, right? So the, the first one is the fact that in, in Reflow, you are using a first-class programming language to directly program uh, your data processing tasks. And this allows you to express in a very, very natural way using the tools of ordinary programming, right? So everything from, you know, if statements to functional abstraction to defining modules, simply what it is that you're, you're, you're trying to process. And so, you know, as an example, if I want to align, you know, a thousand files in Reflow, I simply... I have a list of those files and I effectively iterate over them and align them all and uh, call some align function, for example, to align them and then perhaps merge them at the end of that. Whereas in something like Airflow, you have to use Python to construct a dependency graph that expresses that computation. right? And so the big difference here is that you're directly expressing the computation. right? So that's uh, one big difference. And, and the advantages we get from this is that we can apply all the tools of modern software engineering to this to this problem. And so, for example, we can define a module that does alignment and we can reuse that across multiple pipelines very easily. It composes by definition. We can write tests for these modules and, and so on and so forth. The second big thing is that Reflow has a data model. And so it understands all the inputs and outputs on a data level and it tracks them for you. And what this allows you to do is to cache and memoize all of the intermediate output. And because of that, Reflow is actually able to implement incremental computing. And this is another really, really big advantage, at least for you know, companies like ours that are doing a lot of product development. Because what that means is that I can run you know potentially a very expensive data processing workload and change either the input a little bit or perhaps change my my program a little bit that I'm running. And Reflow will be able to uh, recompute that pipeline using effectively the smallest amount of compute required. So for example, let's say that you did this merging of a a thousand or um, aligning of a thousand thousand different files and then uh, merge them together. In Reflow, you express this, the 1,000 files is just a list of files. Let's say you added another file to that list. Well, ReFlow would figure out that it only has to align that additional file, but then of course it has to rerun the merge. But it can now reuse the alignments for the you know previous 1,000 files directly from cache, and so it makes a lot of computing tasks a lot lot cheaper, both in terms of cost, but also also crucially in terms of development time and, and turnaround time. And so, as an example. It's very common that we're you're running these pipelines over over data sets that are evolving in some way. Reflow is now able to kind of guarantee that we're actually spending the least amount of money and using the least amount of spending the least amount of time to reprocess those data sets. And so this is another thing that's kind of abstracted away from the user. You just get this for free because it's part of the the data model of Reflow.
0: So that backing store that you use to memoize the incremental computing, is that on the same nodes as the compute is taking place or do you have a dedicated node that you use or do you use S3 or something to, to back the data?
1: Yeah, so in principle, you can use a large number of different uh, storage systems. We, u- we use S3 for this because obviously you'd like a persistent store for this because you don't want to, the actual instances that Reflow creates are all ephemeral and so they often die within minutes of, of task completion, right? And so, so yeah, we use we use S3 for this. Okay,
0: so, I think we've done a pretty good job of, of articulating why this is useful, especially relative to to Airflow. What about other... There's some other data processing frameworks we could contrast with, like TensorFlow, I think, arguably, or or uh, Dataflow from Google.
1: How does it compare to these other tools? So, TensorFlow also is somewhat specialized in the sense that it's sort of optimized for targeting certain computational graphs and matching that with effectively available hardware and then flowing data across the edges of that graph. And so you certainly could, I think, express these kinds of workflows in TensorFlow, but it's it sort of suffers the same problems that Apache Airflow would, right? And so probably the way you would flow, say, sequencing data across a TensorFlow graph is actually to you know pass path names or something like this and then read the actual data from some underlying store because uh, tensorflow isn't really designed to transfer huge amounts of data between nodes uh, in this way and so it ends up effectively becoming very very similar to to something like airflow in that case and and so uh, and then I guess the other thing too is that with Tensorflow you're you're also mostly sort of ex- constructing an explicit dependency graph, though they have some nice sort of syntactic affordances for a lot of machine learning tasks to, to sort of make them be expressible in a fairly natural way. So it doesn't seem like you're doing that, but that's ultimately what you're doing. That is also very, very different from the, the model of reflow. In terms of Dataflow. I'm not too familiar with that product, but my understanding is that that's a sort of streaming record-based computing system. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, yeah, and so so again, it's it's not really intended or it's not really designed for batch processing, and it's it's much more oriented towards yeah the sort of record record-based processing, and perhaps doesn't ex- doesn't necessarily integrates quite as well with external tools.
0: Right. Okay. So if I if I were to try to explain what I perceive as as uh, as the main the main uh, kind of pitch of, of Reflow is that it's kind of like a, s- a scripting language or a way of scripting different tools together and easily parallelizing them without spending too much, you know, without having too many layers of, of, of complex abstraction. You don't have to use Python, so it's not like Airflow in that sense. It's, it's got its own language that's dedicated for scripting together these external tools such as uh, bioinformatics tools.
1: That's right. And then I think the kind of crucial things that that enables is the, f- the fact that we can impose a data, data model. Right. right? The back of the uh, story. Right. So so that gets you incremental computing. It gets you implicit parallelism. It gets you all these things that are just sort of very, very nice operational characteristics that fall out from uh, specifying your your workloads in this direct way where you just you know, writing programs. And because you're writing programs, we can do all sorts of analysis to understand and detangle the actual execution semantics of that and optimize for that in various ways. And so, you know, it's very sort of similar to this 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 kind of adage of, of untying the hands of the implementer, right? We want to sort of define an interface between the user of the system and the implementers of the system that allows the Im- implementers to do a lot of powerful and very interesting and, and important things while letting the user express the things that that they need to express, but perhaps limiting them in some way that doesn't hinder on the flexibility of the implementer. And so that's sort of always a balance that you're trying to strike when you're building any sort of system, really. And I think Reflow has a sort of different answer for that than most other systems, notably Airflow and others.
0: Now, just to wrap up, because I know we're up against time, I was looking at your Twitter and I saw, I think, your own from Jane Street was tweeting about Reflow. And when I think about bioinformatics and, and the disparate set of tools there, in some ways, it's, it's maybe kind of like finance. Finance has a lot of weird tooling, uh, like weird third-party libraries and things you have to string together. And you want it to be parallelizable because you want high-performance computing in a, in a finance environment. Can you talk about some of the other applications that Reflow might make sense for?
1: Yeah, so it's it's actually quite a you know potentially quite a wide variety, and so so ultimately I would say that ReFlow is as, as generic as you know you know again sort of drawing back to this analogy of, of build systems, it's sort of like a, a build system right, but a build system for doing highly parallel incremental data processing right, and so anything that can be framed in those terms I think is is applicable for use by ReFlow. So that of course includes a lot of bioinformatics. It includes a lot of these sort of classic ETL workloads, where you have you're consuming some sort of raw data and processing it, either doing transformations or doing some sort of aggregations or or other things like this, processing it to ultimately be say inserted into a analytical database or some sort of system for online querying. So that's another another kind of big use case. Machine learning could be another one as well. In fact, we've used ReFlow uh, extensively for for machine learning tasks where you have some kind of natural parallel in the way you're you're training your um, your model, and maybe using some tool like R, for example, to 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 build a bunch of different models or to build different partitions of a of a, of a particular model, and those kinds of tasks are also very easy to express within ReFlow. And so I, w- I would say, sort of anything that that is amenable to having this sort of file-grained <laughs> file-grained computing. Where you're not doing record-based processing but where you do have uh, domains that require you to use kind of heterogeneous external tools where you can make use of a lot of parallelism and you want cluster computing and also as a as a bonus where you can benefit from uh, incremental computing
0: the file grained computing can you emphasize why that's important relative
1: to the record-based computing why that's relevant to the architecture of reflow yeah, so ultimately, the data model of Reflow is based around files and directories in the sense that you have a set of tools that exchange, you know, so, so fortunately, much,
0: much like an S3 bucket.
1: Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Right. So, so if you think about, you know, ultimately, even though you're writing data analysis tasks and jobs in this direct style, ultimately, Reflow translates that to a optimized dependency graph, right? What flows between the edges of that graph are, are effectively files and directories, right? And so that's that's sort of what I mean by by file grain computing in the sense that you have a set of tools very similar to the way compilers work, that ultimately the, the atomic unit of of data is a file, right? Whereas a record-based system, the atomic unit of, of data is a record. And that is in many ways a lot more flexible because it allows you to say, well, actually my records are stored in a particular way, but maybe I can partition my underlying input so that I can actually process a chunk of records on this node over here and a different chunk of records over, over here. Right. And so you're not kind of subject to the predefined data layout that is given to you often uh, in systems like Spark or MapReduce. And the, the runtime is actually given more freedom to, to partition the data, right? Because the computing semantics are, are record based and not file based.
0: Okay. So the, in contrast with Spark, so Spark's fault tolerance model is, uh, I, I think, some, I mean, you can checkpoint to disk, but it's also the fact that your data abstraction. Oh, actually, I don't. I actually don't remember the fault tolerance model for for Spark. It's something like uh, you can rebuild it from from a lineage graph or something. But you're you're simplifying it because your fault tolerance model is you just write to S3.
1: Yes, so we we write to S3, and uh, we can definitely reuse those results, right? But actually, the, the fault tolerance model of, of Reflow is, is in many ways very similar to that of Spark in the sense that because the language is defined in, and, and this sort of comes back to the code design of, of the language and the runtime, the language is, to, is defined in a narrow enough way that we can always kind of compute the state. So, for example, let's say that you, the job was executing you know, five tasks at one time and there were two nodes and one of those nodes fails. And let's say that three of those tasks were on those nodes, right? And so the we now want to re-execute those tasks somewhere else. Well, because the underlying semantics of reflow allow us to kind of deterministically recompute that state sort of coupled with caching, we can simply just start the evaluation of the program from the, from the top, right? And so one node fails, well, all you have to do is just restart evaluation because because you have caching, because you know that the cache keys that you're going to derive are going to be exactly the same, you'll end up sort of in the in the, in the same state. And so in some ways, you can always compute the state of the system from the actual program itself, and you don't have to do sort of extra maintenance of, of, of state at all. And that's actually a very, very nice, very, very simplifying property of reflow that actually allows us to keep things very, very simple but attain a high level of fault tolerance.
0: Okay, really interesting project. And it definitely seems novel, and it seems like just a a different take on a lot of the parallelism and uh, workflow processing systems that we've done some shows on. And I think it's going to take me a little time to to totally wrap my mind around it. Have you seen uptake from other people that are taking advantage of Reflow, or do you think the community is still kind of uh, nascent?
1: Yeah, so I mean, it's definitely nascent. Though we have, there's a few reasonably sized external users. Is, so, is Jane Street using it? No, I don't. I don't believe Jane Street is, but CCI, so the Chan Zuckerberg Institute, cool. they're using it for, Very cool. um, for, yeah, for some some of their bioinformatics. There's a couple of smaller biotechs that are using it, and at least one or two academic groups that I'm aware of. So again, like mostly in uh, bioinformatics, and so while there's nothing bioinformatics specific about ReFlow, that just you know just because of, I guess of who, who we are and, and and sort of and maybe who follows me on Twitter, I don't know, that ended up being the, the the kind of target the the audience that's picked it up the most. But that's sort of where where things stand in terms of adoption.
0: Are you trying to build? Co- I mean, you're working at a bioinformatics company, so you're kind of like your kpi is is it good for bioinformatics so I, I mean it seems fine if you can just get bioinformatics people to be working on it but do you have any any route to kind of getting other people other communities involved in working on it or like what would be your pitch if you wanted to say look you can get x out of reflow uh if you start tinkering with it and you're talking to somebody who's you know for in netflix for example if you want to convince somebody at netflix to tinker around with it to make better recommendation systems what would you say
1: so I think it fundamentally it comes down to, I think, two things. So one is just simplicity, both in terms of how you actually you know, write your data processing jobs. You're just using a very simple language. You're writing things in a straightforward way. And the semantics of that computation are very clear to the user, but also simplicity in, in the sense that the way you run it, right? So I simply, if as long as I have AWS credentials, I literally type reflow run, you know, foo.rf, and just like you would type Python or foo.py, it, it simply just runs and it instantiates as many you know, nodes as it needs to perform that computation. And so once you're familiar with the system, it's just extremely fast to get up and running and allows you to, I think, experiment very, very, very quickly. And in fact, a lot of People who do end up using Reflow, I think, remark on this capability where they're actually using it for <laughs> trying to actually use Reflow outside of its intended domain because it's such a fast way to actually just do some compute, right? And so I think the kind of ergonomics of usage and the user experience, and this is sort of comes, comes down to the way it's designed, is, to, is kind of a key selling factor. That's the first part of the pitch. And the second part of the pitch, I think, is, is incremental computing. And that's been extremely important to us and, and I know others as well. It allows you to very, very easily iterate both in terms of data as well as code, but still kind of retain this nimbleness of of being able to have quick turnaround times because it can guarantee you that it will always compute the smallest amount of recomputation required in order to sort of reconcile what it is that you computed previously with what it is that you desire now, right? And so it gives you a platform to very, very quickly experiment without having to sort of think about how the way you're experimenting, how it sort of fits in with the general architecture of how you've, you've run things in the past.
0: You know, the DSL side, the domain-specific language side of it is that could be a really really a big deal to people if if you can capture what people want out of a workflow processing engine and then give them some added benefit like through the dsl and then give them some added benefits in terms of how reflow is actually scheduling the workloads and you you know this incremental computing feature i don't know you could you could get some traction it could be it could be it'll be interesting to watch i'll be following the project closely great marius thank you for coming on the show it's been great talking to you uh, it's
1: been a pleasure wow